You are listening to The Film File. Hello and welcome to the second part of The Film File's look back on 2022. Now, last week, we gave you some old reviews of five films that Lee had suggested as being part of the best of the last year. This week, myself, Andy Beacon, will be supplying my own five to round off that list. Regular listeners will know that I watch a lot of films, and in order to keep track, I log all of my viewings on Letterboxd app. This makes narrowing down my list a slight bit easier thanks to their stats page, and one thing that always gets me excited is stats. So. Before we slink into the list of films and take a listen to the reviews from when we first covered them, here's some stats from my viewing over 2022. So over 2022, I watched 393 films, averaging just over 32 per month, and posted 173 reviews. The reviews that are posted on Letterboxd are basically the notes that are used for the show. February the 26th to the 4th of March was my busiest week. I watched 20 films in one week that week. Comedy appears to be my top genre this year, with drama and action taking second and third place. And 38% of films watched were new for 2022. So don't come at me with that nothing new ever comes out nonsense and there's no originality in Hollywood, because... There's a huge amount of films that got released in 2022 that I didn't get round to watching. And yet, out of 392 films, 38% of them were brand new. My most watched star of the year was Jamie Lee Curtis. Thanks to, well, we'll be covering it in the deep dive flashback later in the episode. The Halloween franchise mostly. And Paul Rudd and David Gordon Green and Wes Craven were my most watched directors. So let's get back to the pick of the five from me for last year. For those who didn't tune in last week, Lee had already submitted Banshees of Inner Shirin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Top Gun, Turning Red, and Prey as five out of the top ten for the year that we want to submit. And we're going to start off with what I personally feel is the film of the year, and that is The Menu. This entire evening, this guest list has been painstakingly planned. Is this bergamot I'm getting, Chef? Yes, it is. Could we get a little gluten-free bread? You donkey. Make sure people don't bother me. Would you like this autograph? Who are you? Why do you care? Are you with us or with them? On November 18th. We're gonna die to do this. Isn't that right? Yes, Chef! Get out of their way. I didn't see that coming. The Menu, in theaters November 18th, read it R. A group of people from various walks of life are all invited to the private island of celebrity chef Julian Slowick, played by Ray Fiennes, for an exclusive evening of special dishes, drawn around, as we are told by Nicholas Holt's character Tyler, a particular theme. However, as the courses are served, truths about the guests start to come out, highlighting that there may be a more sinister reason for these names to be selectively invited along for this event, as the meal itself starts to take a very sinister turn. Build as a comedy horror. This gem as a film is maybe less horror. It's unnerving and disturbing at times, but it doesn't quite fit the category of horror in the manner that we usually think of it. More psychological, it unsettles and it unnerves as the tension starts to build. All the while, the dark humour ensuring that it doesn't feel too oppressive. The mix of characters who are guests all offer something engaging and intriguing to the film. From Holt, Tyler and his partner Margot, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Janet McTeer's Lillian, a pretentious food critic. And her editor Ted, played by Paul Adelstein. John Leguizamo's washed up actor George. Regular guests Richard and Anne, Reed Burney and Judith Light. And a group of tech investors and executives. Each of the parties is hiding a secret. 
and the courses laid out over the evening are set to expose them. To say more would be to spoil the film. The film setup is marvellous. It's got an initial setup that takes time to show us around the exclusive island restaurant, serving us the history of the food that will be presented. And for the first few courses, we are immersed into the sometimes pretentious nature of the world of high food. Much in the same way the outfit made us care about the craft before kicking the main story into gear earlier this year. The first half hour of the menu draws us in to be fascinated with the food preparation itself. However, even in those early stages, the almost cult-like aspect of Julian's Island, where his staff live and serve alongside him, throws in a sense of unease. And the maitre d' Elsa, played by Hong Chao, certainly adds to that sense that something isn't quite right. Mark Mylod hasn't made a feature film in 11 years, and this film is a very different animal than what you would have expected from someone who gave us Ali G in the house and What's Your Number? But over the last decade, he's cut his teeth and refined his talent, on shows such as Shameless, Succession, and even six episodes of Game of Thrones. And he's refined his style marvellously, ensuring that the menu is a film that is well-presented, with some marvellous framing and visual flair, effectively chilling whilst retaining a solid level of dark humour to balance it all out. I've been so looking forward to seeing this one, so it's it's definitely on my list. And, and, and that's what I've liked about all the build-up to this movie and all the reviews I've read, is that you don't know what kind of a dish you're going to get until you've actually seen the movie and that intrigues me now for my next pick the first knives out film was an absolute joy and an absolute treat and glass onion when it was picked up by netflix and given a bigger budget there was the worry that maybe it didn't need the bigger budget but what we end up with is a beautiful looking but very tonally similar film to knives out with a great cast it had a very limited cinema release for one week only in November. That's when I had a chance to watch it. I'm sure a lot of you out there have now treated yourself to my second pick for my five, and that's Glass Onion. Andy, what have you seen? I've seen two disappointing things and one really happy thing. Okay, start, start in your happy place. I'm going to start in my happy place, and this week I watched glass onion which by the time this show goes out oh, you won't be able so to watch it jealous. but you'll have to mark a date in your diaries for the 23rd of december for one of this year's treats well i'll tell you what what we've said in our house is because my my other half really wants to see it so uh, that's one of the reasons that we didn't go to watch it this week is that we were going to make it our christmas day film that's the decision we've already decided upon. And yes, I'm looking forward to it. Andy, tell me that you loved it. Ladies and gentlemen. This is it. You expected the mystery. Get your hand off of that. You expected a puzzle. But for one person on this island, this is not a game. Will you explain it to us then, detective? Everyone 
is in danger. All right, when's the murder mystery start? For a long person, this is not a game. I can't. wouldn't hesitate to kill again. You must be really great at clues. I'm very bad at dumb things. Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Lockdown was hard on Benoit Blanc. With no case to solve, he found himself lounging around playing online games with friends, which he struggled with the ideas of, and desperately needing a puzzle to solve, a mystery to unravel, a murder to tackle. When tech billionaire Miles Brom hosts a murder mystery weekend on his private Greek island for his friends, Blanc finds himself invited, much to the surprise of Bron himself. But it appears that the guests have brought their own little mysteries to the weekend, and events begin to play out that put lives in jeopardy and are sure to test the sleuth skills of Blanc. Glass Onion is a marvellous follow-up to Knives Out, and just like the murder mysteries that inspire Ryan Johnson, it can be watched on its own without any prior knowledge of the first film. The only constant here is Benoit Blanc, played, of course, by Daniel Craig. The rest is a whole new cast and a whole new mystery. A boy, what a cast. Ed Norton as Miles Braun, Janelle Monet as Cassandra, Leslie Odom Jr. as Lionel, Kate Hudson as Birdie, Dave Batista as Duke, Jessica Henwick as Peg and Catherine Hahn as Claire are all given ample space to play and each of their characters brings something to the tale. And that's not to mention the plethora of cameos throughout, some of whom will bring a smile, and some may be a tear, including the unseen Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who voices the hourly dong of the island's clock. Seriously. Not wanting to spoil any of the surprises in this film, suffice to say it's seeded with mystery and turns with a marvellously balanced approach. As one mystery appears to be solved, more backstory and clues reveal a deeper secret, and the use of occasional flashbacks to fill in story gaps and seed some further mystery works well to keep the film on track. The humour that we had in the first film is back and ensures the whole runtime carries well. Craig adds more layers onto his character of Blanc in this film as we get a glimpse of the man he is, not just the super sleuth he was in the first film. His interactions with the rest of the characters reveal as much about him as a character as it does about the mysteries unfolding and the end result is a marvellously entertaining mystery with a stunning cast and set in a lavishly shot environment. Roll on the third film. Came out quite early in the year. And it was another introduction of a character who's had so many different actors in the role that there was a lot of negativity on the run-up to this. Would he be able to pull it off? Would it work? Well, turns out that the Batman was actually a pretty decent entry into the DC canon, if not one of the best DC films of recent years. I guess what everybody is looking forward for is our review of the Batman. Let's play a game. What's black and blue and dead all over? If you are justice, please do not lie. I'm here to unmask the truth about this city. You're part of this, too. Who am I part of this? Set two years into his tenure as the Batman, Bruce Wayne is tracking down a serial killer who calls himself the Riddler uh, and targeting high-profile figures in Gotham City in the run-up to the mayoral elections. With the help of Lieutenant James Gordon and a cocktail waitress stroke cat burglar, Selina Kyle, the Batman must unravel clues 
and stop a terrorist attack on the city. So, Andy, uh, you and I haven't had an opportunity yet to talk about the Batman. We, I, I guess we've been both sort of holding back. I'm not sure whether we are going to agree on this one. I feel that we're possibly going to be in the same ballpark, but one of us has a lot more love for this film than the other. So you go first. Well, let's talk about it together. Tell me what you thought. This, for me is extremely high ranking in DC films of all time. When I've added it onto my letterboxed list, and it's a five-star film for me, I loved it. The, the three hours felt like three hours, but like a good three hours. It felt to me, I've done comparisons to, if you have a TV miniseries that you binge watch all together, that's how the structure of this film worked. And I loved every aspect of it. I loved the dark detective noir aspect. I loved the rain-soaked streets capturing that essence it was seven done with capes the cast are all fantastic there's a few contrivances in plot that i can overlook because i was caught up in it like for example why did he jump in the batmobile at that point because no one else was going towards a car what made him decide to go and jump in a car at that point don't know but i (laughs) don't care because it gave us a moment when the batmobile screeches to life like a banshee from hell and chilled me to the bone. And there's things like that that made me love it. It felt like a comic book movie. And I'm not in the Marvel kind of like bright colours, etc. A proper Batman comic book movie. There's not a lot of action. Because comic books, believe it or not, people who don't read comic books, don't have action on every page. Sometimes you have three or four issues with nothing happening. Because it's called story, dialogue and characterization. And that's what this film delivers. It delivered great story. It showed a Batman who isn't Bruce Wayne anymore. He's so obsessed with his vengeance that he only lives as Batman. And there's even a throwaway line when he is going out as Bruce Wayne. I was like, oh, is Bruce Wayne actually going to be making an appearance for the first time? And it's because he's so obsessed with his vengeance. This film, like you say, it's this year two of Batman. It smartly avoids doing the origin story because we don't need to see another slow motion sequence with a gunshot and pearls dropping to the floor as a traumatized young Bruce Wayne looks on because we've seen that multiple times. We saw it twice in Zack Snyder's own film. We didn't need it twice in that film. People know the origin of Batman. Instead, we're jumping into he's now established, but he's still not accepted but he's obsessed with his vengeance and he needs to learn to open up again. I loved it. I'm going to tell you what I liked. I liked um, Matt Reeves. Uh, I like Matt Reeves as a director. I think he, he knows how to put the camera to make an interesting skewed vision of the story that he's telling. He did the same in his Planet of the Apes uh, movies. You know, his Gotham City is slick with rain. It's slick with sleaze. It's got a, a weariness to it. It's not quite the realistic world that we had in Christopher Nolan's Batman, nor is it the uh, hyper-real version in Tim Burton's Batman. It's somewhere in between. It's sort of, a um, again, a city out of time. It could be the 70s. It could be present day. I have to admit one thing that I really loved about it. Okay, two things. And that's the casting choices. Mm -hmm. Firstly, I think Robert Patterson, for me, is the best Batman since Michael Keaton. My love for Keaton is, is has been expressed many times on the show. In the Mask, uh, many times, looked like a, a Neil Adams drawing, looked right. like John Byrne's interpretation of the Batman. Uh, I thought he, while excessively brooding 
throughout the film, I thought he brought a quality to Batman, and especially the detective quality, which had only ever been hinted at, really, in the Tim Burton film. And that I really liked. Zoe Kravitz stole every scene that she was in, which is a formidable task because I think Patterson was fantastic, but Zoe Kravitz was was amazing in it. Uh, a physical presence as well as as giving the film some much needed heart. Uh, I think Jeffrey Wright is one of those actors. Whoever, whatever film he's in, whatever story he's a part of, he had he had some credence and he had some wonderful credibility to it. And it was nice to see. That, that Batman didn't work alone, that he had this little team around him, especially in Gordon, because they are so related within the books. Uh, and, and that was that was something that came through with Nolan uh, and the interpretation by Gary Oldman uh, of James Gordon. But they, they worked as a team, and I really liked that element. What I found with this film is for everything that was good about it, and there's a lot that was good about it, there were moments that, that felt clunky. There were moments that sort of let down the good work of the great scenes for me. I thought three hours, while it flew by, I was never bored, uh, even though I do have a massive problem with the last act. I thought the film wouldn't have suffered if it was 20 minutes shorter. I felt it lacked humour, even though there were occasional scenes that made me smile and therefore sometimes made it a little bit plodding, a little bit dreary. The fantastic car chase was let down strangely by Matt Reeves choices of where to put the camera and at times I wanted I wanted the film to open up a little bit it was very claustrophobic and especially in that car chase because I I needed a sense of geography I needed to know where I was I needed to know what was going on and and I found that problematic you're going to disagree aren't you with that point yeah I thought that that was a fresh way to do a car chase because for those who've not seen the film and it's not a spoiler to say that the car chase is basically filmed from the perspective of cameras strapped on the side of each vehicle. So you don't get to see the, the full streets. You just get to see the... For me, it, it captured intensity of being chased. When you had from Penguin's point of view, you could just see behind him and occasionally see the Batmobile skirting into view. And from Batman's point of view, you occasionally saw that. And it drew me in more. It it turned what would have just been a generic car chase finishing with a catching like explosion, which we've seen in the trailer, to something a lot more intense and gripping. I was there in it without it having to resort to shaky cameras and swift edits. I, I, I did like the choices he made. I just felt that I, I wanted it to open up. I, there was a, a problem I had with the film, which was, was a sense of geography uh, within it, and it <laughs> which we'll, we'll, you will mention in a little while. As I said, I thought Patterson was great. I thought he did a very different and unique take on Batman. Uh, and, and I said, next to Keaton, he's my favourite Batman. I liked it. Don't get me wrong. I liked it. What I do think you could have done with this film is take Batman out of it and you would have still had a good thriller. You would have had a Seven-esque movie, a very David Fincher-style thriller that Batman, whether he was in it or not, wouldn't have changed the dynamic of the film. And that kind of bothered me a little bit. I have a problem, and it's the same problem I have with Nolan's Batman. We can't have extravagant villains like a Mr. Freeze or a Clayface in these in this style of Batman, which you could have done with Burton's world. I think when it's too close to our reality, then you've got to ground the villains as much as you've got to ground Batman. I thought the uh, the flying bat suit was a little disappointing. Uh, and again, it, it sort of threw me out of the film. Now, what I did like about it, 
other than the casting, and I must mention Colin Farrell's unbelievable transformation. Uh, not only using prosthetics as the penguin, but also the fact that boy, did he bring something unusual to the character that was that was very clever. Uh, that you, yeah. you can't even see Colin Farrell in that role. What I did like about it is this is a Batman for this generation. And it said a lot about the world that we do live in. You know, uh, there's a, a a line about elitism and white privilege in it, which I thought was, was very clever and brought us a sort of up-to-date post-Trumpian Batman. So, yes, I liked it. I thought it was, well, not totally a radical change from... Uh, Nolan's Batman. I thought this was it was great to see the Dark Knight detective element being played up. I think it liked humor. I think the script's clunky. I think the third act is a bit odd. There was some odd choices that that ended up not being particularly. Ultimately, it paid off with what it 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 finally showed what the arc of Batman was. But I thought for all that setup, it felt rushed and weak. But I, that's not to say. I didn't have a good time with it and that I didn't not like it. I just liked it, but it had some problems. I wanted to love it, but I liked it. Uh, with regards to the casting, you've already mentioned like Zoe Kravitz, who I've got so much love for. Everything that she does is just golden as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Paul Dano as um, the Riddler, a Zodiac-inspired take on it, is chilling and menacing behind a mask the same way that Batman is. But... I want to give a shout out to John Turturro. Oh, yeah. Who kind of like has, has disappeared into the sidelines and made some bad career choices over the past decade and a half. But in this, showcases in the role of Carmine Falcone, why he should, should still be cast in as many films as possible. He was marvellous in it. He was chilling, menacing, but also subdued at the same time. Loved it. You mentioned geography, and we elicited a chuckle. Because, yes... There's one element of the film that kept breaking me out. And I can't fault the film for it because you've got to, if you're going to shoot and use locations, you have to use somewhere. But being from Liverpool, <laughs> it's impossible for me to look at something that's supposed to represent a part of Gotham without going, that's Liverpool Lime Street and that's St. George's Hall. Because that's where... One of the key moments of the film takes place. There's also shots of Liverpool Museum. There's the top of the Liva building is used on top of another building completely yeah. randomly. And yes, there's some great CGI mapping of like alternate backdrops to give it more presence as part of Gotham. But every time that a location from Liverpool came up, I was instantly going, that's Liverpool. And that just kind of broke the illusion a bit for me. But that's not a problem of the film. That's a problem because... I know these places inside out. And I'm sure that people who live in Glasgow felt the same on the Glasgow shot scenes. And I'm sure that every time that a film has been shot in your, like a location that you know, you will be broken through the illusion when it gets to it. It's a great use. And I know why they used Liverpool, because Liverpool has such beautiful Gothic architecture throughout. Yeah. And it's utilised perfectly to represent a beautiful looking Gotham. It's how I envision Gotham to look. And I think it gets it perfectly right. So, yeah, it broke the illusion for me, but it's not a negative thing that it did. I do also want to mention, and I mention a lot of times with films, how important the score is. And the score by longtime collaborator with Reeves, uh, Michael Giacchino, it more than complements the somber tone of the film. And it's a different approach for a Batman film. It's not like sweeping arcs and everything. And it's resonating around that same tempo of uh, Nirvana's Something in the Way, which is very prominent within the film. 
And I think it really does deliver something that we've not had from a Batman film yet. I'm interested to see where this new direction goes. I'm pretty sure with the box office figures over the weekend that we're going to see more. I want to see Patterson return as Batman. Absolutely. I thought he was a tremendous, tremendous force for it. And I'm interested. As I said, I just wish I'd loved it some more. That's it for the reviews. Uh, Andy, anything out? over the next week that you think we should all be watching or are the cinemas going to be quiet due to the bat? Well, next weekend, there's no real big releases coming out of the cinemas. Red Rocket and Sideshow are the only films that are on the radar there. They're not going to be big hits because the Batman's going to dominate the box office for the next two weeks. Now, horrors can be hit or miss for me. Sometimes they manage to get things right. Sometimes they're just so trite and cliche. Sometimes they're let down by sticking to the tropes too much. Now, One horror this year, use the tropes and use the cliches, but flip them, spun them around and left you dizzy as you were trying to work out what on earth you're watching. And that film is Barbarian. So Andy, you've uh, you've done the Lord's work this week and you've been to the cinema with one film that I am absolutely gagging to see, but sadly couldn't make it. And that's Barbarian. Hello? Directed by Zach Kreger, Barbarian is set at an Airbnb where, at the start of the film, Tess Marshall, played by Georgina Campbell, finds that the house is already occupied by Bill Skarsgård's Keith, who, it appears, was booked in that same night. Unnerved by the situation, the lack of other options lead her to agree to share with Keith until they can sort things out the next day. But things are not all they seem at this Airbnb, and pretty soon events take a dark turn. That's pretty much all I'm going to say about the film's story without giving up the sharp and unique manner in which it plays out. Suffice to say, the film didn't exactly go how I expected it to on multiple occasions, and it kept me on my toes, chilled, and on occasion, laughing from start to finish. The opening section, drawing on all the red flags that make you suspect something disturbing is about to happen, is masterfully played out before the film goes all out to toy with expectations and flip things around so much it leaves you spinning. The direction is solid, making the location feel tight and claustrophobic, with the surrounding area being a wasteland of destroyed homes, giving it an extra unnerving edge. But a flashback to decades previous takes on a pastel-shaded suburbia approach, really capturing the time in an offsetting and equally disturbing manner. Craig gets the most out of, out of his environments, including the tense, dark, underbelly corridors carved out beneath the house. When the horror elements hit, there's just the right amount of blood and gore to make you squirm without dwelling too much on it, ensuring that it's the unnerving nature of the story and the atmosphere that's the true horror here. Barbarian is a film that homages many that we've already seen before, but it plays against type so well that it still feels fresh and unique, and it's certainly a film that I intend to revisit again. My final pick to round off our 10 films for the year is the Alexander Skarsgård starring Robert Eggers film, The Northman. It's Vikings, it's a revenge drama, it looks amazing, as you'd kind of expect from Eggers, and it really stood out for me as one of the picks of 2022. Moving on 
to a film that I am gagging to see and Andy got to see it. Uh, it's, it's on my must-see list, and that is The Norseman. Why would you stow away to such a hellish place? To find what was stolen from me. And what is that? A kingdom. And night by night, we will carry out my pledge of vengeance. I will fetch you from. I will save you, mother. Your strength breaks men's bones. I will kill you, Fjord. You must choose between kindness for your kin, or hate for your enemies. Alexander Skarsgård plays Amleth, a once prince on the verge of becoming a man when his father was brutally murdered by his uncle, who had also kidnapped his mother. He swore vengeance on his uncle, and two decades later, he's become a fierce Viking warrior, raiding Slavic villages. When he hears news about where his uncle is now, and has an encounter with a mysterious seeress who prophesies his future, he sets off to avenge his father and save his mother. The film is a stunning example of epic storytelling with bloody and brutal carnage, a strong story that carries through and elements of mysticism and religion drawing from Viking mythology and lore. Skarsgård in the lead role is strikingly mesmerising on the screen, his presence grabbing your attention and demanding you follow his journey. Surrounded by a solid cast who all have something to offer to the film, no role here is wasted, and the inclusion of names such as Willem Dafoe, Nicole Kidman, Bill Skarsgård, Anya Taylor-Joy, Ethan Hawke and Bjork mean that Eggers has the deck stacked in his favour from the start, while so many other indie directors have struggled to make that shift over to bigger, higher-budgeted output. Eggers succeeds phenomenally, delivering his largest and most focused film so far. Working under a studio umbrella, he retains his striking visual flair and darker edge themes while still managing to make a film that is accessible to the general audience. The visual style, aided by some sumptuous cinematography from Yarin Blaschke, who's been with Eggers since the start, utilises the environment and landscapes and shifts from black and white to colour in such a deft manner that it gives a film that is marvellous to observe, let alone follow. When the action comes... It is fluidly delivered with marvellously long takes, which carry us through the carnage with intense brutality. All of this is complemented by a score by Sebastian Gainsborough and Robin Carolan, which evokes the fierce majesty of the Vikings. This is an unmissable and somewhat unique epic. I left the theatre feeling that I had just genuinely seen my favourite film of 2022, not just so far, but in its entirety, because it's going to take something really unique and special to top this piece. Thrilling, engaging, majestic, bloody. This is yet another example of how Eggers is one of the most unique voices in filmmaking today. And whilst it's very rare that I will go to watch something more than once at the cinema, after all, there's so many to see. I'll usually wait until home release before revisiting something. This is something that I really want to see again on the big screen while it's still there. Get this film marked down to get watched. You won't regret it. This is The Film File with Lee Ford and Andy Meakin. And if you're a fan of this particular show, hey, did you know, as well as your weekly radio show, there's a podcast. All you have to do is head over to your favorite podcast platform, find the film file, hit the subscription button, and you'll get the film file delivered to you every week, as well as bonus episodes and, you know, whatever we can give away. 
Remember to hit the subscription button and remember to hit the like button because we like a good like. If you want to know more about The Film File, you can head over to Twitter and follow us at Film File UK, Instagram and find us Film File UK. You can also email us comments, suggestions, films that you want us to talk about, films that you think that we're wrong about. Tell us what you think of films. Podcast at filmfile.uk. So that's our top 10 films out of the way for the year. There was a few films that were just bubbling under. Films such as RRR that landed on Netflix, or you've got The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, or The Outfit, or Apollo 10 and a Half. All in all, it's been a pretty decent year for a wide variety of genre of film. Any films in your top 10 that you think that we missed out? Get in touch. You know what to do. Fire us an email over podcast at filmfile.uk or find us on social media channels filmfile.uk and drop us a message there. Now, as you know, each week we conduct a deep dive into a film or star and occasionally into a whole franchise. However, covering a whole franchise can take up a chunk of time and as a result, these sections tend to get trimmed down a little for the radio version. This year, we covered both the Planet of the Apes series of films and the Halloween series of films. And both of those deep dives ended up getting trimmed for time. So as an extra, here's the unedited version of our deep dive into the Halloween franchise from this past October. And now it's time for this week's deep dive, where we deep dive a film of our choice. However, this week, we're going to deep dive not just one film, not just two films, not even a trilogy. We're going to deep dive the whole damned series. In time for Halloween, we're going to be looking at the Halloween franchise. Halloween. Newsweek magazine calls it a superb exercise in the art of suspense, the most frightening flick in years. Halloween. The Chicago Sun-Times says it's so scary, I would compare it to Psycho. It's the kind of picture, says the Chicago Tribune, that forces you to sleep with the lights on. A masterpiece, says New York's New Times. Halloween. From Compass International, rated R. It all began back in 1978 when John Carpenter and Deborah Hill brought us the first of the Halloween films. For those who don't know, this is an American slasher franchise that consists now of 13 films, as well as comics, video games, merch, novels. And the primary focus in all of the films, bar one, is on Michael Myers. As a, he who was committed to a sanitarium as a child for the murder of his sister, Judith Miles, and 15 years later escapes to stalk and kill the people of Haddonfield, Illinois. Michael's killings occur on the holiday of Halloween, in which all of the films primarily take place. As I said, the original came out in 1978, written and directed by John Carpenter alongside Deborah Hill. And then that was followed by Halloween 2, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and then Carpenter kind of drops out then and we enter into new territory. Rob Zombie's had a go. David Gordon Green's recently had a go. But why does the Halloween franchise keep resurrecting itself? Andy, a fan? I mean, you've done the Lord's work and basically watched them all over the last few weeks. And I'll be honest, I was kind of out by uh, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, even though I did drop in for H2O and I did drop back in for the first of the new Halloween franchise. So why do you think it's endured as well as it has? It's an interesting one, the Halloween franchise, because there's no consistency across the series. 
you know, you've seen, we've all seen the charts online now telling you the multiple different timelines for Halloween. This is a multiverse of different threaded stories because, you know, you've got Laurie Strode has died a couple of times on the franchise, but still comes back. Michael has died a few times, but still comes back. The story has taken so many different paths. And I think that's one of the charms of it because now you've got to a stage that no matter how bad you find the most recent Halloween film, you just hope that five years from now, they'll reboot it, ignore everything that happened before and pick it up from a story that you did like. If we go back to the first two films, the first two films sit quite nicely together. You can tell that Deborah Hill was still on board producing and John Carpenter was still kind of behind the scenes on Halloween 2. Not an essential film, but it picks up the events at the end of the first film. But that first film had such huge impact. It started the ball rolling on the whole slasher genres. You could theoretically say that Psycho was an earlier slasher and there have been other films, but this was the one that set up this whole person wearing a mask, silent stalker, killing usually teenagers who've had sex. This laid down all the foundation. And because of that, because this was that original series of films, I think that's why it holds a special place in someone's heart, everyone's heart, even though... All of us who are fans of the series acknowledge that it's a bit of a shaky ride to sit through the whole lot. Now, the original film, which came out in 1978, uh, co-written and directed by Carpenter, uh, and tells the story and sets the scene for Michael Myers, uh, sets up the idea, as you said, of, of killing babysitters in that particular film and stalking in particular Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who is the only other consistent-ish thread throughout most of the incarnations. It's now quite quaint, uh, still creepy, but it's very bloodless by comparison yeah. to how the rest of the franchise turned out. But why this works is, A, it was the it was the first film to do it and still feels has that fresh quality. And Michael is, is suitably creepy in that film. But Carpenter just takes his time to develop tension. He, he doesn't yeah. rush the entire film. Yet Michael only has about nine minutes, ten minutes of screen presence in that first film. But his presence is felt all the way through. And that's what makes it an impact. It, it's another one of those classic horror icons. I mean, the Hellraiser films did it as well. The Cenobites are only on screen for about five minutes, but you feel that they're on screen a lot longer because their foreboding menace is always in the background. And that first film set it off so well that obviously when the, the sequel got greenlit, they just wanted to pick it up and go with it from there onwards. Even though the original concept for the Halloween franchise was for it to be standalone movies. It was supposed to be an anthology franchise. Okay, so we got Halloween 2, which picks up uh, where the events of Halloween left off. And as Michael follows Laurie to a local hospital, uh, kills everyone who comes between them. And the story reveals that Laurie, uh, spoiler but it did come out in 1981. Laurie is Michael's sister. Uh, she was given up for adoption as a, as an infant. Yeah, and that has become, even though the more recent films have said that the more just following on the story from the first film, the second film is key importance for that bit of information because that bond between them it then became the staple for every film that had Michael in it going forwards. Even... If we ju we'll, ju we'll jump back to Season of the Witch in a minute because I just want to talk about what I consider the original branching storyline of the Halloween franchise. You jump ahead to episodes four, five, and six, which saw the return of Michael Myers and also introduced Laurie's daughter, Jamie, 
played yeah. by the very young Dan- Daniel Harris, who was magnificent in that fourth film. The fourth film is well worth checking out as far as I'm concerned, because it it kind of got it back to the ground roots style of it. And it has a unique ending that kind of should have finished the franchise there because it brought it full circle. Spoiler alert for people who uh, haven't seen a film that's a few decades old. But uh, Jamie, in the final scene, it's suggested that whilst dressed in a crown costume, she has just stabbed her foster mother in a scene that echoes that opening scene of the very first film. And it's a brilliant little bit of like familial bonds and the passing down of the menace will continue going on. However, they then picked it up for a fifth and sixth film and introduced a cult, the Cult of Thorn, I believe it was called, who worshipped Michael and saw him as some like entity demonic presence and he brought some supernatural elements into. And that's where it all goes a little weird on the fifth and sixth films because there's themes such as mob mentality in the town, which we've seen in more recent films, which it brought into it. We get Paul Rudd popping up, which is a bit of a surprise when I rewatched it and saw that. But you get one film, which is the fifth film, which has Dr. Loomis yelling at a child, Jamie, played by Daniel Harris, for pretty much the whole film. He yells at her constantly. And it's completely like that's not the Dr. Loomis character because they've introduced this whole idea that Jamie now has a psychic link with Michael. And then you get to the sixth film. And now Jamie and Michael had had a child and that child becomes the focus. And that's the point where I check out. That's the point where it's like, whoa, you just got a skirt over the incestual relationship going on here? Sixth film, skip. But then they came back for H2O. And H2O kind of went, let's forget that four, five, and six. And let's just pick up from the second film and bring it 20 years later. Yeah, so that picks up from Halloween 2, forgets everything that happened in four, five, and six. We'll we'll come back to Halloween 3 because we need to spend a bit of time on that. So H2O, I thought was marvellous. I thought what a great way of bringing back uh, Michael Myers, bringing back the threat, doing something new with it, bringing back Laurie Strode, who faked her own death so that she could go into hiding from her brother. Uh, She's now working as a a headmistress at a private school under the name of Kerry Tate. She continues to live in fear of Michael's return and her son, John, played by Josh Hartner, attends school where uh, she teaches. And this was kind of... um, the aliens, I think, of the uh, Halloween series. We saw that she's been living in fear, but she has to take the responsibility. This film didn't need a sequel. This film was complete. It came on the back of the Scream franchise. It had a a strong cast. It had a strong style. Uh, I think Halloween H2O, 20 years later, is the perfect sequel to uh, Halloween 2. Yeah, I mean, director Steve Miner had cut his teeth on films such as Friday the 13th Part 2 and Part 3, House, Warlock. And then, you know, when he got Halloween H2O, he was a solid pair of hands to approach this genre and really do it justice. And it does it great justice. That final confrontation aspect between Laurie and Michael plays out marvellously. Like you said, they'll say it came out around about the time of Scream and all that, and it did the same kind of tongue-in-cheek approach at times but always kept it menacing and the final resolution at the end of it yes even though when it happened i went well if you want to make a sequel all they have to do is this and funnily enough they did exactly what i speculated when it came out it didn't need a sequel it would have been a great little completion yeah because then we got halloween resurrection yeah which all i'm going to say about halloween resurrection is that i i watched this when it first came out in 2002 and i rewatched it for the first time 
this past month and I've forgotten everything that happened in it already because the only thing that sticks in my mind is that Buster Rhymes cannot act and whoever <laughs> put him in here was on some weird drugs. It's a mess of a film. It tries to go for the, tries to get like tap into the Big Brother-esque aspect that they've got a house where some people are in and they're recording it. And it's just the wrong film. It feels like it, it feels like one of those retrofitted scripts that had been doing the rounds through Hollywood and they went, uh, quick, we need a sequel to Halloween H2O. Oh, well, we've got this script that no one's wanted to pick up. Right, can we force Michael Myers into it? Yeah, maybe. And that's where it all falls apart. And that basically led to five years of nothing being said about the Halloween films for good reason, because Resurrection, <laughs> quite ironic that a title of Resurrection was actually the death of the franchise. <laughs> Including, I must point out at this stage, because we'll come back to this, that Laurie Strode is now committed to a mental institution after all the good work she's done in H2O and then is subsequently killed. Oft very quickly at the start of the film, which kind of undoes everything that her character had gone through. It was cheap. It, was, it, tried, it thought it was shocking, but it was actually disappointing. Let's now jump ahead to 2007 and then we get Halloween a remake of the original film, not a sequel, not a prequel, not an extension of the timeline. We get uh, a film by one of our favourite directors, <laughs> Rob Zombie, a man so good at uh, shooting his Monsters film that he'll probably never work again. Uh, uh, one of the only filmmakers that I will I have ever walked out of a film by. So we get this grubby take, and, and it is grubby take on uh the Haddonfield killer yeah with I mean, with how resurrection had soiled the brand yes it kind of needed a reboot yes it may be a reinvention from scratch was a good idea on paper but it was completely in the wrong hands zombie didn't just direct he wrote it as well and produced and stars his wife and stars his wife and the result is he brought his down what i consider a downright right grimy approach to filmmaking, setting it with trailer trash that you don't care for any of the characters. It tries to tag a backstory for poor Michael, who had a tough upbringing as, uh, upbringing as the son of trailer trash, to make us try to emote with Michael Myers. Everyone in this cast was unlikable from the start. It's impossible to root for anyone, even the Laurie character, as much as they try to make her not be as bad as the rest of the trailer trash that she lives with. She's still unlikable. She's a horrible person. Everyone's abhorrent in nature. So you find yourself actually just waiting for Michael to kill someone else because you actually find yourself, yes, despite me saying what, like, you don't need to connect with the backstory of an evil killer, you start rooting for him, but for the wrong reasons. You get to the second film from Rob Zombie, though, and that's when it went completely bonkers. He introduced a supernatural element. Uh, there was a, a, a white horse symbolising, you know... It, Escape and Freedom. And you've got Malcolm McDowell, who's normally brilliant in everything. And he was okay in the first Halloween film by Rob Zombie as um, the Loomis character. But in the second film, even he becomes entirely unlikable because all of a sudden he's brash, he's arrogant, he's on a book tour and he hates the fact that people don't want his book. And then there's a bizarre scene when they're on a chat show with Weird Al popping up as a cameo. And I was watching it just thinking, have I downed some strange <laughs> drugs that I need to need to be warned of? Because this cannot be happening. It's the most bizarre 
film that I've ever seen. And it's an all-round low ebb for the series. It was quickly forgotten. <laughs> it's it's embedded in my mind. It'll never be forgotten now. <laughs> As we now jump back to a direct sequel to the original film and, again, another sequel to Halloween 2. This time we've got uh, everything that's been ignored, uh, that's gone on previously, uh, including Halloween H2O. Um, Michael was arrested in 1978, spent 40 years back in Smith's Grove Sanitarium uh, during a prison transfer on the night before Halloween. Why did they move him the night before Halloween? <laughs> Come on, people. Jinx. <laughs> Come on. Don't you know? It's his big time. It's his time of year. Michael's able to escape uh, the bus after it crashes and returns to Haddonfield for another rampage. Now, I didn't dislike this. I thought this felt... I, I don't think it needed to be a trilogy, but I quite liked this return to Halloween. It did feel like a, a, a sequel. I, I thought there were some interesting ideas going off in this. Yeah, um, I'm with you on this. I wasn't when I first watched it. When I first watched it, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't delivering what I was expecting. And I was disappointed. But on the revisit recently, I got something from this. It's good to see Laurie again. Yes, and seeing that she'd spent 40 years preparing for Michael to come back. She'd spent 40 years ready to battle him and take him out, knowing that he would escape eventually. And the final confrontation for them, and this 2018 film, like you say, it didn't need to be a trilogy. It feels like a one-off film. Yeah. It feels like a perfect closure to the Michael and Laurie story. It ends with him trapped underneath a burning building. He's dead. It's done. It's over. And it's a brilliantly played, brilliantly paced final entry in the chapter yeah. that is only three episodes long, basically. But then, clearly it wasn't going to be the end because we had a subsequent two more sequels. <laughs> yes, Halloween Kills, which plays on the similar theme that I mentioned from episodes four, five, and six with the mob mentality hunt for Myers, showing that the town had been corrupted and you know the, the town was angry at things and angry at the wrong people and the wrong people get in the way. But it felt tacked on. It felt like they'd just gone, wow, that was a bit a bit more of a success than what we thought it'd be. Let's quickly churn out another one. And there doesn't seem to be as much thought gone into it. It moves a lot of the action, similar to Halloween 2 did, over to a, a hospital. And it basically tries to follow the themes of Halloween 2, but doesn't tap into it. And it, it felt, I don't know, a cheap cash-in more than anything else. Yeah, because all the work had been done in Halloween, I thought. And again, this is this is apart from the original Halloween two uh, and and H two O. The stories have concluded nicely, and it just feels we as an audience feel as though we're cashing in on more Michael Myers, whether we want it or not. How the second film Halloween Kills ended set it up for a third film, which sadly, when they delivered it, they didn't pick it up at the natural point at which it seemed to be leaving off on the previous film, and it just jumped ahead four years. And all of a sudden, Laurie, who, as we've just said, spent 40 years preparing for the return of Michael Myers, within the space of four years, has now gone, oh, everything's rosy, he's not around, I can get back to normal life, and he's just being a grandma. And it doesn't fit. That's not the Laurie Strode character that we were introduced to just two films beforehand. Just four years in time within the universe beforehand she suddenly settled down even though she now knows that michael is still out there and ready to kill at any point and particularly with her getting ready for her to celebrate halloween 
there's something not right about Laurie Strode carving pumpkins and putting up decorations ready to celebrate Halloween. Mm. Because if anyone's not going to celebrate it, even if Michael was dead, she would still not be celebrating that time of year. It all feels, again, like a script that had been doing the rounds, that hadn't been picked up, that they retrofitted to add Michael Myers in because he becomes nothing but a background character within this film until the last half of it. I spoke in more detail about my feelings on Halloween Ends last week in the show when I reviewed it fully. But overall, it just feels like they've tarnished the image even further. They've made a worse film than Halloween Resurrection. And that's saying something. (laughs) Um, Let's talk very quickly about Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. It came out in 1982. Uh, has nothing to do with the Michael Myers character. And as you said earlier, the idea that Halloween for John Carpenter was going to be a anthology series. Yes. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. This is one that I loved when I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> I, I loved it on VHS release. I loved I was baffled at the time as to why this was called Halloween, because the only thing that it's got to do with Halloween is Halloween is on TV. In one scene of the film, it's on a background TV, the film Halloween. It's all about a corporate mask maker who are basically flooding the market with their gimmicky masks and promoting a your like a big celebration that will take place at a set time on the night of Halloween when the masks will, you know... You, Basically, basically, the kids are ready for something wonderful to happen with the masks, but it turns out that the masks are designed to kill, and it's all for a mass sacrifice to appease the dark gods and awaken the dark entities. And as that plot starts to uncover, it's a chilling, it's thrilling, and it's got one of the most addictively annoying jingle theme tunes <laughs> that rattles around your head every Halloween after watching it. Uh, this was directed by a uh, close friend of Carpenter, Tommy Lee Wallace, who played uh, Michael Myers in the first film. Though originally Carpenter recruited British science fiction writer Nigel Neal because Carpenter was a big fan of his Quartermass series. Neal said his script didn't include horror for horror's sake, as the main story had to do with deception, psychological shocks rather than physical ones. Uh, and Neal asserts that the movie mogul De Laurentiis, Dino De Laurentiis, owner of the film, didn't care for it and ordered more graphic violence and therefore he requested that his name be removed from the credits and director Tommy Lee Wallace was then assigned to revise that uh, revise that script uh, and they went for something more along the lines of, of being Twilight Zone or Night Gallery with this idea that uh, there would be other kind of Halloween themed movies. Yep I'd like to see the future of the Halloween franchise to adopt this approach I'd like to see them start to move into using the name Halloween, but doing anthology stories because Season of the Witch, it feels fresh. It was critically shredded on release, but it built up a lot more appreciation over time. And it's become one of the cult favorites. Pretty much everyone who likes anything in the Halloween franchise always say Halloween 3 Season of the Witch is amongst their favorites. Yeah, I love it. I've got a lot of time for it because it did do something different. I love the Silver Shamrock. Uh, mask guys uh, i thought it was a really neat idea uh, and i like the idea that it doesn't fit in with the rest of the halloween series and i think it's uh, we invest in it in a very different way and as you said it's now found 
its recognition as being a, a cult classic. Um, the Silver Shamrock Masks made a brief appearance in Halloween Kills, and apparently there was plans for the final scenes of Halloween Ends to reference the Silver Shamrock mask-making company as a little like nod and wink, but they decided, mm, let's not do that. I'm glad that they didn't, because I like this to just be separate. I don't want it to be linked in. Yes, a nod and a wink with a mask being there is one thing, but if they had have actually specifically referenced the company, it would have made a bit of a huge issue within the whole franchise. If you're thinking of re-watching the Halloween films, or if you've never seen them before, my suggestion to you is watch the 1978 Halloween, watch Halloween 2, give Halloween 4 a shot. It's cheaper in budget, but it's it's thematically fits nicely. Pop H2O in, and then watch the 2018 film. They're the main story. And then watch Halloween Season of the Witch as its own separate entity. You have to take H2O separately to Halloween 2018 because they don't exist in the same universe. But the, the, they're both well worth checking out as closers for the main story. The rest of the films, you know, uh, Curse of Michael Myers, Rob Zombie's Double Bill. Disregard from your dojo. Yeah. Halloween Kills, Halloween Ends. Just disregard from your dojo completely. You can't talk about any of the Halloween films uh, before we go and not mention the score. Uh, John Carpenter, mm. who composed the music to the first three films and then uh, came back and worked on the newest three films. That simple piano melody played in a really odd time rhythm, 5-4 time, which is which is very odd. Uh, and the synthy score is just the main identity, it's its up there with Michael Myers himself. If you want yeah. to understand what makes Halloween work, then John Carpenter's musical style is is, uh, is the way that it's, it's, it's become the identity of the films. And when it's not used, then I think that's when the films aren't at their best. It's one thing that John Carpenter has always done well. His musical scores for his films have always helped with building the atmosphere, the tension, or the characters within. Halloween is possibly his best score. Um, I might argue the point and think Assault on Precinct 13 for me, but uh, it's it's iconic. It's an iconic piece of music yes. in the same way that the James Bond theme is, the same way the Star Wars theme is. As soon as you hear that piece of music, then you know where we are. Um, as we said, Michael's lived in many other different forms. There's been uh, novels, there's been comic books, there've been online stories. There was a, a video game, probably best forgotten because I didn't know it existed. <laughs> uh, tons and tons of uh, merchandise, uh, of course, masks. There's a silver shamrock mask that uh, you can actually pick up now. So even though Halloween ends, you can't keep a good master serial killer down. Give it five years. And we'll see another Halloween film. Uh, Andy, if we want to find the Halloween films, where can we find them? Uh, you're going to have to do some serious hunting because they were mostly on Netflix up until recently. I think H2O and um, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 are still on Netflix. The rest of them are scattered across other services. Yeah, BBC iPlayer have got the new Halloween, the yeah. 2018 Halloween. Or just rent them as a block package or go out and buy yourself there's multiple box sets out there for whatever versions of the films you want. You can well and truly pick them up and add them to your collection. Basically, look at it this way. If you get a box set of the Halloween franchise, you get five films worth seeing and the others just consider getting them for free. <laughs> I, OK, I agree with that. <laughs> we'll be back next week with another deep dive. And that's about it for our roundup. 
We'll be back again next week with our regular show as we start our journey into 2023. Until then, hope you've had a great festive couple of weeks and I hope you've watched a lot of films. Thank you.